Discworld, it's Discworld Podcast Analysis, yeah! Hey, I'm Josh. And I'm Alice. And I'm very low energy because this is the third episode on, which is broad, which was meant to be one episode and then two episodes, but is now three because Surprise. that is the magical witch number, right? Sure. Yeah. We could do, we could go for seven. Yeah. I'm a bit burned out on fairy tales, Alice. <laughs> Although we're not really going to be talking about fairy tales that much this episode. That was mostly last episode where we talked about all of that and Disney and things. A bit about Snow White in this episode, but mostly we're looking at some of the, I guess, uh, sociological and political themes that are going on in the book. Yeah, Alice is nodding. Yes, <laughs> we are. <laughs> yeah, we are. And the first thing we want to talk about is mirrors. Um, originally, one of the, like, the two things I liked about the book and the one thing I did not, one of the things I wanted to say was I really like Lilith's cool mirror room. Mm-hmm. The full room mirrors, it's all focused in the middle, it's focusing the power and stuff, and I thought that was a really cool image. And then uh, the more I looked into it, I realized that's sort of like already a trope. That's not really this original thing so much. I do think it's a cool uh, version of it. But in the 17th century, uh, wealthy women had rooms called uh, cabinet lumbrices or panelled studies. So all the walls are divided off into all these sections, and in each of these sections is, is a mirror. Mm -hmm. On every wall. So this is um, a project appropriation rather than an invention. And as multiple critics have pointed out, Lilith's mirror room also recalls the uh, Marquis... Marquises. Man, words are hard. Uh, The Marquises' harem in Angela Carter's Bloody Chamber that we talked a lot about last episode. Yep. So you haven't read that one, have you? No. You're going to, but you haven't got around to it. Um, Yeah, the room that he brings her in, the bluebeard guy brings the um, lady into, and they have a lot of sex, uh, is all done in a room surrounded by mirrors so that she is, like, watching herself as all this is happening. So, mm. yeah. Also, in the third Oz book, Ozma of Oz, from 1907, uh, the narcissistic murderous princess Languire of the Land of Ev has many exchangeable, detachable heads, and she's trying to get Dorothy's for her own, because Dorothy's, like, the prettiest woman. She's trying to cut off her head and wow. keep it for as part of her collection, which ties into um, the uh, Snow White stuff, right? Who's mm-hmm. the fairest of the mole? It's Dorothy. I'm going to cut off her head. She also has um, a room of mirrors that she keeps all her spare heads in, which is something you see in the Return to Oz film, where right. the character is combined with the evil sorceress Mombi, uh, who we talked a bit about in the first part, so it's all coming together. Mm-hmm. Sort of. <laughs> Uh, mirrors also appear as great luxuries in Perot's version of Cinderella and Bluebeard, and are also a frequent feature of second wave feminist criticism, which is largely based on psychoanalysis, unfortunately. <laughs> The French critic Sabine Melchor Bonnet um, even argues that femininity itself is a creation of the mirror, noticing how misogynist cultures often identify female evils with the evils of the looking glass, and points out that from the 13th century on, Eve, as in Adam and Eve, is often depicted brandishing a mirror. Mm-hmm. connecting her with the medieval conception of Vanitas, which isn't just the name of the fourth best and our Nathrak record, but a reminder of death that is meant to point out the frivolity of vanity and physical goods, which was often represented by a woman holding a mirror. Now, I've done a lot of talking there, but Alice, this is this is one of your things. Right, we're talking about even, even the mirror and the Even the mirror yeah? and the Vanitas and all, all of that. All right, so we know the story of Narcissus or Narcissus. Well, why don't you just run people through it? So, in Ovid, uh, Narcissus uh, looks at his reflection in a lake and he thinks, oh gosh, that young man looks pretty. So, he sits down and he keeps looking at it and he can't rip himself away from it. And eventually, he dies and turns into a daffodil, which is good for him. Oh, I didn't know the daffodil part. Yeah. 
So this is just the man who falls in love with his own reflection. Falls yeah. in love with himself. And it's the idea of, you know, self-love um, uh, going to the extreme. Uh, but it's connected to Eve because pride is always represented as putting the self above everything else. And self-love, therefore, is almost an, the ultimate form of pride. Um, he became so self-involved that he died next to a <laughs> next to a lake. In Milton's Paradise Lost, with Eve, uh, when she first wakes up and becomes conscious, she sort of wanders off and she finds a lake uh, that she sees her reflection in and she thinks oh my gosh that looks really beautiful and then a voice calls her away and it's Adam's voice and she leaves but she does it reluctantly and what this is meant to represent is that within Eve there is already a form of pride but it is kind of a healthy form of pride one that is curious and interested but isn't going to sit by the lake all day and um, engage in sort of prideful self-love she's just kind of looks at it thinks oh that's pretty and then is called away by adam but it does foreshadow everything to come and also complicate the idea of free will and whether or not the humans were made already with the capacity for fall within them and then whether or not god basically set everything up so it complicates milton's story but it also complicates the character of eve as something more than just subject to adam it represents her as having her own form of pride but then that self-interest is ultimately punished that self-interest is ultimately punished. So it starts off as healthy and nice, and then uh, later Satan comes along and uses that, appeals to that, calls her the empress um, and the greatest of all God's creations and the most beautiful, and she thinks, oh, yeah, I am, though, and <laughs> does whatever she wants. Um, so it then becomes corrupted, essentially. Right. So it's not her own female vanity sort of yeah. itself needed to be kept in check. It is a specifically a corruption by an outside. I mean, Satan is not necessarily male, but masculine yeah. influence. And and Adam's version of this is curiosity. So it, both of them are kind of a form of curiosity, but Adam keeps asking Raphael for more information, more information until Raphael says no. And the point is they're both healthy expressions of pride and independence that then become corrupted by Satan's influence. Yeah, and this is a thing. Like when I, I think I read one of your things, right, when uh, where you brought up Eve in the mirror and I was like, this seems irrelevant. And you were like, no, 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 no. Like the mirror is a thing. And the more I've read, like, you know, Eve looking at her reflection in the water is a thing. Like, mm -hmm. everyone talks about it. And so, yeah, the mirror is tied in with these conceptions of corrupted femininity, which obviously ties into Lilith. Yeah. The Pratchett character, not the Jewish mystical devil, which we'll talk about later. But it's also, there's an emphasis on mirrors throughout feminist literary criticism as well, especially with regard to fairy tales, which is largely due to our favourite scholars, Sandra uh, M. Gilbert and Susan Gabar. Wash your mouth uh, out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and their influential 1979 feminist treatise, The Mad Woman in the Attic. <sighs> now, as Alice's reaction might tell you, I'm being a bit facetious there, because Gilbert and Gabar are not our favourite scholars. Not even close. <laughs> they are maybe our least favourite scholars. I appreciate them and the work they've done, but I think a lot right. of that work is wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to give a rundown of Gilbert and Gubar, what are they writing? Yeah, 1979, they're, they're big deals in sort of second wave revisionist feminist literary criticism. The Mad Woman in the Attic is their big book, which, yeah, sort of talks about how their argument is that historically women and women writers have been portrayed as... Essentially crazy women, right? The, the mad woman in the attic is from Jane Eyre. It's the wife who's locked up in the attic. Any sort of creativity or independence from women is must be contained or imprisoned by the patriarchy, as they're reading. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of say that the romantic writers and all these 19th century writers up to when they're writing in the mid-20th century are writing back against this and they're sort of breaking out of these molds 
And then they're sort of arguing that it's impossible, that they can't break out of the moulds. It's kind of like Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence. It's like these women are trying to break out of the moulds, but that because of the, the strength of the patriarchy, they can't. And I find that annoying. Yeah, there's a little bit self-defeating. It's also, it's interesting. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to use avoid using synonyms for whack, but... <laughs> whack is it, though. Yeah. But given that their argument is that men tell creative women they're crazy and I'm here going, yeah, but this is, this is pretty nuts, it? guys. It's whack. <laughs> it's whack. As a woman, um, as a straight white cis woman, it whack. Well, that is your privilege. <laughs> That's my privilege. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of ridiculous psychoanalytic stuff mixed in as well. And it, it's not just us, right? So although they've become incredibly influential since The Mad Woman in the Attic, the book was originally met with some apprehension from a lot of fe- feminist scholars, such as Mary Jacobus and... Susan Lancer, who were troubled by what they saw as a flattening out of literary ambiguity and a zealous desire to impose a single framework and false coherence onto a many-voiced and many-sided history of women's writing. Yeah, so Lancer even argues that Gilbert and Gubar overlooked many of the subtleties of the text they were analysing by using literature as a mirror for their own sense of self. Yeah, that's good. Because a common critique of Gilbert and Gubar, it's the one that you said, is that they don't sufficiently take into account the geographical and historical context of the stories they analyse, attributing too much value to the author of the text. Yeah. Right, they're overemphasising Mary Shelley's autobiographical representation rather than the broader themes that she's engaging with. And, like, in a messed up way, um, because Mary Shelley was obviously engaging with ideas from Milton in her own way. So it's, instead they're saying that she's being imprisoned by Miltonic ideas, but actually she's engaging with them. In the same way they call Milton an angry, sexist misogynist, it's like, yeah, by our standards, of course, but by his standards, like, his representation of Eve is incredibly forward-thinking. So, again, frustrating... <laughs> Yeah, I don't have the exact quotes in front of me, but, like, they go both ways with Shelley. They say she's imprisoned and she can't break out of it, and that Frankenstein is the most imprisoned in this Miltonic patriarchy because it is a rewriting or reinterpretation of Paradise Lost. And while I don't agree with that, I follow their argument, right? This Mm -hmm. lady can only express herself through this patriarchal urtext. But then they say somewhere else that by doing this... This is the way to embrace independence by taking these myths and reinterpreting. So Mm. along with being just kind of all over the place and have this really contextless stuff in it. The actual argument is hard to follow and they seem to contradict themselves a lot. Yeah. Um, Jacobus, who is a fellow of the British Academy and commander of the British Empire, so a big deal Ooh. in terms of literary scholarship stuff. Although she acknowledges the Mad Woman in the Attic as among the most ambitious and, in its own way, artful works of feminist literary criticism to appear in America in recent years, criticizes Gilbert and Gubar for willfully misreading the text they study in the interest of creating their own mythology around women writers, so that what is lost in their analysis is precisely the female mm. text itself. Gilbert and Gubar themselves imposing a form of tight lacing which immobilizes the play of meaning in the text whose hidden plots they uncover, often allying themselves with the romantic myth-making their analysis is supposedly positioned against. She also says Gilbert and Gubar themselves become spinners of tales, or spinsters, like those whose stories they tell. Which brings us back to this idea of Rumpelstiltskin, the queen spinning. Oh yeah. That we talked about last episode, right? Yeah. Because you brought up the, uh, what's her name? Penelope. Penelope in the Odyssey is spinning on her loom the entire time while she waits for Odysseus to come back. So I did do a little bit of research into this. And I couldn't find anything specifically linking spinning to the idea of masturbation, which is what we were playing around with last time, mostly because of Freud's ridiculous psychoanalysis stuff. What I found there was that it was usually spinning is just a domesticated women's role. Mm -hmm. So 
it was meant to represent the natural domesticated order and then if the spinning stopped then the domestications come undone mm-hmm. so while while she keeps spinning she maintains the household yes yeah, she does <laughs> rather than a sexual signifier but spinster is the word that jacobus uses there saying they're spinsters of tales because i also wondered if yeah connecting it to spinners of tales in mm-hmm. the Odyssey and things. The spinster, as defined in the OED, is a woman, or rarely a man, who spins, especially one who practices spinning as a regular occupation. But it says it's also appended to names of women originally in order to denote their occupation, but subsequently, from the 17th century, became the proper legal designation of one still unmarried. Mm. So it's weird that this term spinning spinster is also a preservation of the domestic order but also at some point the ideal is that it's meant to give way to some kind of male influence if you're a spinster your whole life you never get married so there's no domestication to preserve yeah and i think i think while it's apt that they've used it to describe gilbert and gabar it also then just becomes like again part of the problem gilbert and gabar Mm. are trying to develop a feminist critique they use like a pretty anti-feminist term to describe what they've done it's like ah Yeah. It's also interesting because in Discworld, the prostitutes are seamstresses. Ah! I still reckon the the sexual connotations are there in some cases. Well, that's what it is in the Discworld, right? Yeah. The spinners are the sex workers. Good for them. Yeah. Well, that's no real firm conclusion, but there is something going on here with female sexuality and and spinning, even if it's not a direct Mm. metaphor for masturbation, as the psychoanalyst would have you believe. Uh, So back to Gilbert and Gubar. Because now we actually have to talk about what they say, because despite all this criticism, yes, the Mad Woman in the Attic has been incredibly influential. And they begin uh, the Mad Woman in the Attic with an analysis of the Queen's Looking Glass as a metaphor for literary paternity, which our boy Zipes, the uh, fairy tale studies guru, describes as a particularly penetrating analysis, (laughs) which I thought was a pretty amusing choice of words in the same way that... um, Carol J. Adams has a book from 1990, The Sexual Politics of Meat, a feminist, vegetarian, literary, or critical theory, um, now describes her work in her own profile as seminal. (laughs) (laughs) So lots of uh, fallacies going on there. I mean, this is just the patriarchy, right? Words mean dicks. Words mean dicks. (laughs) It's the language they've given us, and it means it's all about penises. Everything is a penis. Uh, but to plow on with Gilbert and Gubar and fairy tales and mirrors. So they argue that the Grimm's Little Snow White follows the mythological Lilith story, which we'll get to, uh, by dramatizing the essential but equivocal relationship between pervasive cultural depictions of female characters as either angel women or monster women, later of whom they describe as an undeniable witch who is doomed to the inward search that psychoanalysts censoriously define as narcissism. This is back to the the Eve looking in the water thing, right? Women are either pure angels or they are narcissistic devils. That's your two options under patriarchy and you got to pick one. Yep. So as Vanessa Jusen explains in her 2011 book, Critical and Creative Perspectives on Fairy Tales, Gilbert and Gubar view the mirror as a symbol of patriarchy and as such, it cannot simply be destroyed. The traditional ending of Snow White promises a continuation of the status quo with regard to gender roles. It's titular damsel having merely exchanged one glass coffin for another. So yes, this, this chapter is a, an analysis of Snow White and they go in and say it's all about pitting women against each other. Right. Queen is happy as long as she is the fairest of them all mm-hmm. and then when Snow White comes this is the threat of a younger more virile replacement so she tries to offer and then the resolution of the story is the re- restoration of the patriarchal order by Snow White kicking out the queen and marrying the prince. Yeah okay alright I see it. Yeah. To tie this into Witches of Broad right 
you've got Nanny and Lilith being pitted against each other. They're the angel woman and the devil woman, except the inversion there is, of course, Granny is insistent that she is the devil woman being forced mm-hmm. to be the angel woman, and Lilith is the devil woman who thinks she's the angel woman. Mm-hmm. But then Lilith is also the one who is trying to... She doesn't want to install the patriarchy. In fact, she's a matriarchal ruler, but she is defeated by the lineage of the younger um, Amberella being restored. So there's something of that model being preserved there, that she is a female threat. Yeah, now I'm arguing against myself. I guess what I was saying was that she's the one imposing these fairy tale stories. This goes back to, I don't know what Lilith's motivation is Mm -hmm. for imposing fairy tales. Like, she wants to control, but she's perpetuating these myths rather than undoing them. Oh, we're going to get to that when we talk about pastiche and parody, aren't we? Uh, we are, but it still doesn't make sense why okay. Lilith is doing it. I guess it's just the cycle of abuse, hurt people, hurt people and all that. She's been constrained by these myths and these fairy tales her whole life, so she's going to force them on everyone else. And it- Well, that, that becomes her way of um, getting power, isn't it? She uses the system against other people, which is Gilbert and Gabbard's argument, isn't it? Yeah. So I guess she's using the system against other people, as you said, rather than to help herself and other women. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, the last section of Witches Abroad is sort of a revision of Snow White, as much as Cinderella. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Neil Gaiman, so Pratchett's friend and collaborator, who's going to keep coming up as we discuss these books, um, he also has a 1994 short story called Snow, Glass and Apples, which is a revision of Snow White, uh, in which a benevolent queen sees herself reflected in her daughter's eyes as she is roasted alive by a vampiric Snow White. Why? Sort of a direct... Um, flip there with making the queen the good one and Snow White the bad one, sort of like Pratchett does with Nanny and Lilith. But there's less of that ambiguity there. It's just Snow White is an evil vampire and the queen is good and she's become a victim of this patriarchal cycle. Also reflected, we've got mirrors again. Because they're they're doppelgangers, right? That's the idea of the mirror. So it's interesting, even while um, Pratchett's inversion and revision is more complex and more ambiguous it still maintains this dichotomy there has to be a good one and a bad one they can't be like they're not ambiguous figures themselves Mm -hmm. lily and granny even they are ambiguous figures but the story not just the stories in the world but pratchett's story pratchett's structural thing makes one be a good versus bad it comes down to a fight between good and evil there's no avoiding that narrative imperative Mm-hmm. So continuing on that theme of mirrors, the literary critic uh, Warren Moat argues that reading itself can be conceived of as a kind of mirror gazing, that among the many things we see in literature is ourselves writ large, and that in doing so we construct a vision of ourselves we may sometimes recognise immediately and sometimes not at all. I'm so glad you've put that note in afterwards. <laughs> well, yes, I've said this is the kind of scholarship I find largely meaningless and unhelpful, right? How are we meant to apply this? People see themselves in books books and mirrors yeah then what i do think it's touching on the themes of witches abroad in that people construct themselves through stories like you read stories and then you go and you want to and it influences the way you behave and it influences the way we think that's why vision of stories are so important like we've both taught the penelope ad etc and especially when discworld which pratchett has described in reaper man which i think comes out just before weird sisters they come out in the same year 1991 so they're probably being written at the same time pratchett starts off that book by proclaiming the discworld both a world and a mirror of worlds so pratchett had mirrors on the mind while he was writing this and it reflects the broader idea yeah, see what i did there mm-hmm. that we are meant to better understand our world through pratchett's disordered discworld reflection of it so there is something in at least in terms of 
Discworld and and this sort of satirical postmodern fantasy that we are seeing a weird distorted reflection of our world, but then that can influence and and construct identity in the real world if you're taking those and then applying them elsewhere, I guess. Yeah, and then we have a turtles all the way down. See what I did there. Situation. In her 2009 article, Book as Mirror, Mirror as Book, that's that thing, and I cut it out of the last episode, but what, what do we call that when something goes one way and then it goes back the other? Chiasmus. That thing. That rhetorical device. <laughs> I don't do poetry. <laughs> um, but it's also, it's a mirror, right? It's a reflection. Yeah. It's a fancy word for a reflection, because it's Book as Mirror, Mirror as Book. It's like they're looking in a mirror. It's pretty good. That's what Satan does in his big soliloquy. Like he suddenly looks himself in the face and then that's when we get all those examples of chiasmus. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he goes and corrupts Eve's innocence. Well, by, he says, yep. evil be thou my good, which is an inversion of reality. Anyway, go on. Sorry. To make a heaven of hell or whatever it was. What's the line? Make a heaven of hell or hell of heaven. There we go. Because hell is a distorted reflection of heaven. Amen. Love it. I get it. So as Shanos notes, even in novels such as Witches Abroad, which do not take place in overtly patriarchal settings, mirrors specifically represent women's powers and fantasies, right? They're associated with women, not men. I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but generally I think that's pretty true. Although she notes that there is a significant difference between early fairy tale reimaginings in which women literally struggle to survive against male perpetrated violence in a world run by and for men, and Witches Abroad, in which all the major characters are female and they all wield varying degrees of power for various reasons of their own. So this is back to the observation from the uh, the Australian writer pointed out that, yeah, it's really kind of strange that the protagonists in Pratchett's books are often women. It's not something you see outside of, like, Lady Knight fantasy and stuff. So, yeah, she points out that all of the political power plays in the novel are entirely female, and that all of the men in the novel are puppets, with the King of Genua literally rendered a zombie who was only given life and power by Mrs. Goggle. That's fair, yeah. Did you have any thoughts about that? Other just than- that they make they make clowns of all the men they meet that stand in their way, don't they? Like the guys, the gambling guys. Everyone. Right, the gambling scene. I think yeah. that's pretty representative of that idea. Um, the men think that they've got the women under their power and the women don't let them. There's not even a question, really. Hmm. I'm not entirely sold on the idea of the king like being a puppet because the idea is to restore the king to power. Is he a puppet of Miss Goggle or is he kind of meant to be a golem zombie thing and do they have a will of their own? Yeah, I think, I mean, he has a will of his own because she's preserving him not as a political play but because he's her lover. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> In a zombie voodoo <laughs> kind of way. It's cute. <laughs> So, yeah, that's some pretty, like, insightful stuff from Shannaris, but then we also get lost in the psychoanalytic stuff, where she argues that Pratchett represents the mirror as a story itself. Although, as she notes, the reader is constantly told to look into the mirror, right? That's at the start of the book. Look into the mirror, so that reading the story and looking into a mirror become the same thing. Again, Mm. what are we meant to do with this? I guess it's just the idea that art reflects life real life and real life reflects art and all that but Shannon's therefore argues that the writer of witches abroad must be lilith okay so that the book and the mirror are not only conflated but become expressive of lilith's plans and fantasies how do we apply this alice i don't know that we can i think that's just her trying to be real smart yeah and also the author of the book is not lilith because everything is told from the other witch's perspectives where we can't see them i'm not buying that (laughs) 
Um, nevertheless, as Shanos notes, mirrors are also the medium of Granny Weatherwax's victory, noting that she defeats Lilith not by rejecting mirrors outright, but by acknowledging their powers and then using them against Lilith, and then later accepting the reflection as an aspect of her own personality. Now, I don't know about that, because the whole point of the bit in the mirror is that she says, none of the reflections are me, I am me. Mm. So I'm not sure if she does accept reflections as part of her personality so much as she just manipulates them to turn Lilith's power back on herself does some headology judo there headology judo yeah the book ends with yeah the scene of the mirror maze which is a big trope in postmodern fiction right mostly because it's a it's a it's a revision of the Nighttown scene in James Joyce's Ulysses. Okay. Ulysses. I haven't read Ulysses. It's on my list. It's so bloody long, isn't it? Have you read Ulysses? No, I haven't got around to it. I did mean to read this chapter for this, but I, I just didn't get around to it. Because there's a chapter... Because Ulysses, it's a rewriting of the Odyssey, a modernist rewriting of the Odyssey. Yep. And this chapter is called Circe. So it's the witch chapter. And oh, the, nice. the main... The protagonist, Stephen... Yeah, he wanders around the city and he ends up in a mirror maze. And then postmodernists become obsessed with the Odyssey and rewriting the Odyssey, right? It's the oldest story that perpetuates through time. But they also become obsessed with rewriting this funhouse mirror scene, right? You have um, Lost in the Funhouse. Yep. You should mention, which literally the guy goes into the mirror and, and he gets trapped in there and loses himself, which is something we had in the Us movie mm-hmm. the other year. Every Batman story with the Joker ends in a funhouse thing, even I think. It's the second or third John Wick movie ends with a mirror fight. So this is this is a trope that keeps coming up. The, the mirror thing, and it kind of annoys me because it seems very played out at this point. Every time I see a mirror maze, I'm like, oh, okay. But you liked it in Witches Abroad? It was one of your favorite bits? Well, I like the mirror room. Okay. That she was like sitting in and focusing her power there. Yeah, as soon as someone enters a mirror mirror maze, I'm just like, fuck, how long are they going to stumble around until someone smashes through the mirror and punches them in the face? Yeah, it's funny how these very meaningful tropes now are just so overdone that we roll our eyes and it's like, okay, well, we either need new tropes or we need new takes on the tropes. But then, yeah, I'm thinking like Pratchett would have used it perhaps thinking, oh, this is useful. This will be interesting. This will be a fun play on the thing. But, but, but much like Shrek, by the time we get to it now, it's been so done. I mean, I do think he does a good take on it. Like, it's not yeah. that they end up in a mirror maze. It is. It does have something to do with Lilith being captured in the mirrors and, and her fractured identity. Like, there is something more going on there than just like, oh, who's the real me? But um, it's it's almost that running the story running down the mountainside to its logical conclusion. Like, we had mirrors, so this has to end in a mirror maze. There's no yeah. other possible ending for this story in a postmodernist fiction setting. Mm. I think that's everything about mirrors. Do you have anything else about mirrors? I think we've covered the mirrors. For the rest of this podcast, I want to zoom in and do some close um, analysis of the major players, the major witches in this book, being Lilith, Granny Weatherwax, and Miss Goggle, who we'll talk a little bit about. They are... Uh, stakeholders in this although granny's not really a stakeholder she's more of a come in and kick everything over and tell everyone what to do that is her vibe yeah um but we'll start with lilith so as pratchett and simpson explain in the folklore of discworld in earthly myth and legend lilith is the name of a terrible female demon noted for pride as well as cruelty it is said that she was adam's first wife but refused to submit to his authority and fled from eden into the desert where she consorted with demons and became a demon herself ever since she has exploited her beauty by seducing sleeping men in their dreams and satisfied her cruelty by killing women in childbirth and strangling young babies she feeds on their blood and sucks the marrow from their bones right so we get a bit of this cannibal witch imagery coming in there as well it's fun stuff i mean lilith's a pretty 
well-known um, figure, I would say. Maybe not in general popular culture, but certainly in fantasy would understand the connotations of Lilith as soon as that name comes up. Also, like, if, we, if we're accepting that story, which we'll pick apart in a moment, right? If she's the first wife of Adam, um, is she the first witch then? I mean, if you're if you're going by the Christian storyline of humanity, yeah, they picked that up. You probably haven't seen it. Some people may have seen it, but the latest uh, representation of Sabrina, which started off really good and then got really bad, Lilith is in it. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and they talk about her being the first witch, and in the end, the witches all change their coven instead of worshiping Satan, they worship Lilith, and it becomes this whole like we worship yeah. the first witch thing. And she's quite interesting because it shows that she actually was kind of in love with Adam. Is the storyline that they take, but that she could. Like she still couldn't subject herself to him, and then she goes over the devil who mistreats her, and then she has her own storyline. So, like, it's as bad as Sabrina has gotten. There are some really good and interesting takes on these quite traditional ideas. Now that little story line sounds really cool. Uh, Maddie watched the whole thing, and I sort of, you know, saw it in passing, and and it always looked pretty bad. And even yeah, by the end, Maddie was like, "It's just gotten so bad. I don't even know if she finished it." But... I struggled with those last few. I was yeah, just like, I okay. have to do it for science. <laughs> And this is, I was almost going to say, this is sort of the narrative imperative thing. Like, you can't have a story about witches and hell without having a Lilith character and a Satan character these days. It's sort of expected. Although, surprisingly, Lilith isn't really talked about in all the major secondary sources I've been using to explore real-world witchcraft. Like, she just doesn't come up in any of Hutton or Perkis's stuff really at all. Which might be because she's not really a thing. So the idea of Lilith comes from early versions of the Hebrew Bible, where it is said of God's judgment of Jerusalem in the book of Isaiah that thorns will come up in its fortified palaces, nettles and brambles in its fortified cities. It will be a haunt for jackals and a bird for ostriches. Indeed, Lilith will settle there and find herself a place of rest. So Lilith has literally been translated from the Hebrew as night demon. However, modern scholarship's position is that this is a mistranslation. Right. Um, Lilith is not a night demon, and it doesn't make sense for her to be a night demon, since all the other creatures in the passage are wild animals, right? It's like there were ostriches, and then a, and then a she-witch, and then also it's like Lilith should be logically another animal, and it seems more likely that Lilith, the night demon, represents some kind of night bird or screech owl, as it's translated in the King James Version there. So, potentially a uh, mistranslation there, but that's the only reference to Lilith in the Bible, unless you found something else. Well, I'm thinking, I don't think it's that she's not a thing. I think she's a Hebrew thing, isn't it? And you're more looking at, like, the Christian idea of witchcraft or something. Um, But also she's in Spencer, she's in Milton, she's in Dante. So she's like a thing, but not a thing. I mean, Lilith is a thing. I meant Lilith is not an actual, like, she's a simulacra. Right. She is, she's become a thing, but there is no original Lilith in the Hebrew story. Like, yeah, the King James is the later Christian translation, but I'm saying the King James there is the restoration of the original translation of Screech Owl. Because mm-hmm. Genesis is a Jewish story as much as a Christian story. I mean, it's more a Jewish story than a Christian story, because Christianity doesn't exist until Christ comes along in the story and in the real world. Yeah, so it was originally a Screech Owl in Jewish Hebrew myth, gets warped and translated and builds up this idea of Lilith, and then gets retranslated back to Screech Owl in the King James Bible, but then the myth of Lilith continues on, but it's not actually referring to an original figure in the Bible, it's this mismatch of mistranslations. Right. Is it in other, well, it is, it's in other Hebrew stories, isn't it? Yeah, it's just not in the Bible, or, or what we understand as the Bible, it's in the stuff that is left out of the Bible. <laughs> 
So the most extensive and impressive investigation of Lilith's origins um, that I found is a 2008 thesis by Judith M. Blair called De-Demonizing the Old Testament, which was apparently published by an independent German press in 2009, but I could only get access to the thesis, so I'm going off that. Um, as Blair observes... Lilith started out more as a type of demon rather than a specific one, and later developed during the Middle Ages, so the 14th to the 17th centuries, she's dating it to there, um, via Jewish mysticism, into the singular most feared demon of Judaism. So she traces Lilith's origins to the Sumerian Lilu demons, uh, who were the female counterparts to the male Lil, so yeah, it's succubuses and incubuses. Right. And then, yeah, she's saying not until the 14th century, so almost a millennium and a half after Christianity and everything, that this myth of the Lilith, or Lilith herself, gets solidified. She says that a demoness named Lilaki also appears in the story of Gilgamesh and the Halupu tree, which was inscribed in a stone tablet from around 2000 BCE, uh, wherein Gilgamesh slays a dragon who is harassing the goddess Inanna by hanging out in her tree, in which Lilaki has also built a house, and then when Gilgamesh slays the dragon, it says the terror-stricken demoness tears down her house and escapes into the desert. Well, this idea will come back in the myths of Lilith. There's also references to a demoness named Obzioth, who has many names and moves about at night, visiting women in childbirth and strangling newborn babies in the Apocryphal Testament of Solomon, which dates to the first four centuries of the Common Era. So Lilith as an archetype of the female demoness who attacks children and flees into the devil. This is around, but it's not identified and solidified into Lilith herself until much later on. Okay. So Lilith's backstory as the first wife of Adam actually comes from an anonymous 8th century satire called The Alphabet of Ben Sirah, which is about a baby who is born with the ability to talk and who becomes something of a prophet. Have you, have you read this? You said- I read it. I knew thing? of it because Peter and I have talked about it at length. Right. Well, I went and read it. Right. <laughs> um, and when asked by King Nebuchadnezzar II to heal his sick son, Burden Sirah writes an amulet inscribed with the angels of medicine telling him- Do you want to read this one? God also created a woman from the earth, as he had created Adam himself, and called her Lilith. Adam and Lilith immediately began to fight. She said, I will not lie below, and he said, I will not lie beneath you, but only on top, for you are fit only to be in the bottom position, <laughs> while I am to be the superior one. Lilith responded, we are equal to each other inasmuch as we were both created from the earth, but they would not listen to one another. When Lilith saw this, she pronounced the ineffable name and flew away into the air. Said the Holy One to Adam, if she agrees to come back, fine. If not, she must permit 100 of her children to die every day. The angels left God and pursued Lilith, whom they overtook in the midst of the sea and the mighty waters wherein the Egyptians were destined to drown. They told her God's word, but that she did not wish to return. She said, I created only to cause sickness to infants. If the infant is male, I have dominion over him for eight days after his birth, and if female for twenty days. But she swore to them by the name of the living and eternal God, whenever I see you or your names or your forms in an amulet, I will have no power over that infant. What we would think of as the common story of Lilith this is the fully formed version of it. I, th I don't think Ben, the anonymous author of Ben Sirius is coming up with this. This is a representation of something that's been around Before, in folklore yeah. and things. Yeah. Um, but this is the most complete tale of Lilith as the original wife of Adam. It's interesting also that her whole thing is, I don't want to lie underneath you and we were created equal because uh, we we're both created out of the earth. Like her original argument is pretty sound. It's not even that she thinks she's better than Adam. She's just saying that we should have an equal position. She is the original feminist. Yeah, suck on that, Mary Wollstonecraft. Suck on that. <laughs> Well, I think Godwin had a whole Bible, a whole diary dedicated to her sucking on it. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I told you this. Godwin kept a uh, kept a diary of when they fucked. Godwin's fuck diary. 
Yeah. So back to Ben Sierra. Okay. <laughs> After that, <laughs> just there's no way to transition out of Goblin's Fuck Diary back into 13th century, no, 8th, 9th century Hebrew um, mythology. Mm. But, um, All right. <laughs> I know how we got there. I just can't get back. <laughs> Um, but the editors of the version of the Alphabet Sarah that I'm using claim it may be one of the earliest literary parodies in Hebrew literature. Um, and it also spends a lot of time at the end discussing the nature of the Angel of Death, which I thought was interesting, given that we're doing Pratchett now. Mm-hmm. Right? Satire is based around death or with death as a prominent character. Just an interesting connection. So just just to elaborate on the Ben Sirah story a bit, because I think it's interesting and also gross. Ben Sirah is conceived because it's a virgin birth, but the way this is explained, Benser is conceived when his father goes to a bathhouse and participates in what is essentially a circle jerk, and his, quote, drop was preserved until his own daughter came back to the bathhouse and it entered her vagina. Ew! Yeah. Seven months later, she gave birth to a baby boy who was born with teeth and with fully developed powers of speech. Seven months is too few. Well, that's, um... Seven. It's seven, but it's also one of the things that premature um, children in Hebrew mysticism are apparently, like, they're meant to be holy or more divine because they're more quickly developed. So it's not just random that they've picked seven. Seven is to show that he is a more superior birth. There's also a couple of other prophets who, like, ladies go to bathhouses and sit on piles of sperm and then they give birth to things. But the the reason why Ben Sirah is so knowledgeable is because it's specifically her father's sperm. Yeah, that's weird. It's very strange. And the 13th century rabbi Perez of Corby apparently used the account of Ben Sira's conception to argue the permissibility of artificially inseminating a woman with her father's sperm. No. So in the first part of Ben Sira, uh, he is taught his alphabet by a teacher and responds since he can already speak with a nugget of wisdom. Uh, beginning with each letter. And these nuggets are incredibly sexist. Ah. So he taunts his teacher, who he says doesn't have a worry in the world except for the fact that his wife is ugly. Ben Sura then gives advice such as, By a beautiful woman's countenance, many have been destroyed, and numerous are all her slain ones. So... Alright. Be thankful you have an ugly wife, because beautiful women are dangerous. He also says, uh, cherished by every person are male children, but woe be the father of females. To which the teacher responds, but I have seven daughters. Again, seven. And they spin. Yeah, and they spin and do all the housework for me. So the domestic stuff. And he says, but if there were no females, where would all the males come from? And Ben Sero responds, poor man, you comfort yourself with worthless consolation. For as the sages stated, happy is the man whose children are male and woe to the father of the female. And when a female comes forth from the belly of her mother into the air of this world, the heavens, the earth, the stars and the constellations, everything that has been created in the world, mourn that this has happened. Yikes. Yeah. God, I feel bad about being born. Mmm. He also says that having a daughter is the worst because come her marriage, you will worry the most that she will not have sons. And when she grows old, you will fear that she will engage in witchcraft. That is my father's main concern. That <laughs> you won't procreate and then become a witch? And I'll become a witch, Yeah. <laughs> So that's just to say that Oliver, you were saying Lilith's the original feminist, but uh, not a particularly feminist text there. Oh, no. And the associations with women who don't marry are witches. They're mm. spinsters. So we've got a strange connection there. Now, I've written, we have a Ben Sira surprise, and I'm very excited about this one. Uh, yeah, so we said the, the background of Lilith comes from Ben Sira giving advice to King Nebuchadnezzar. So another thing he advises King Nebuchadnezzar on, Alice, I'm going to get you to uh, read this section for us, please. Sending this to you right now. You have not seen it before. Some days later, the king said to Ben Sira, I have a daughter who expels a thousand farts every hour. Cure her. (laughs) 
is this my dad? Uh, ben Sira replied, send her to me in the morning with her attendants and I will heal her. The next morning she came with her attendants. Yes, yeah, she did. When Ben Sira saw her, he began to act as though he were very angry. Why are you very angry? She asked him. Your father decreed that I ex must expel 1,000 farts in his presence tomorrow and the following day. I'm afraid he may put me to death. He gave me an extension of three days, but I still do not know what to do. <laughs> Don't worry, she said. I will go in your place and expel 1,000 farts in front of him for both of us. If that is the case, replied Ben Sira, stay here with me for three days and do not break wind so that the farts will be ready on the third day. Every time a fart was about to come, the king's daughter stood up on one foot and stretched her eyes wide as Ben Sira told her to, and she contained herself and closed her mouth slowly until the breaking of wind stopped completely. After three days, no farts came out of her from her behind. On that day, Ben Sira took her to her father saying, go and expel 1,000 farts for your father. She stood before the king, but she was unable to break wind even once. The king stood up and kissed Ben Sira. The fuck? <laughs> So that's the kind of thing we're, uh, we're What's talking about. What's the moral here. there? Now, this is followed up by, I'm now going to get you to read the next section. Oh, no. He then questioned Ben Sira. Why were farts created? <laughs> All right. If not for breaking wind, a person would have diarrhea and defecate in his clothes. But when a person feels that he's about to fart, he goes and attends to his needs so that he will not be embarrassed and sit in filthy clothes. Shit. So it's just notice that you're going to take a shit soon? Well, it's if you don't fart, you don't shit. If you don't shit, you die, right? That is <laughs> my father's favorite saying. <laughs> So there we go. That is the origin of Lilith and the origin of farts. Thank you for that gift. <laughs> I thought you might like that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's also a book by this George MacDonald guy. It's the Goblin Princess one mm -hmm. that keeps coming up. So I am going to read it before the Lords and Ladies episode. But yeah, it's by, by him, George MacDonald, called Lilith from 1895, wherein the protagonist is led through a mirror and into another world. And apparently this was a big influence on uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. It'd be interesting to see what the, the theology is like in that book then. Yeah, well, I didn't read it just because I didn't. Mm. I don't have time. Might have a look. Um, so back to Pratchett's Lilith, though. In a 2019 article, The Mirror Cracked, Representation of Characters in Terry Pratchett's Witches Abroad, Joanna Musser observes how Lily Weatherwax uses names in order to reinvent herself. That although she does not change shape physically, she does so by creating new identities. Yet Musser also notes that changing her name does not allow Lily to become a completely new person. The one she was, and partially still is, lies beneath her facade. And she argues that Lily's confusion about her own identity is made apparent through the constant shifts between her names in the narrative as well, which mirrors the insatiability of her identity while claiming that this insatiability is further reflected in the heroine Emberella, whose name also shifts between Embers and Ella. Okay. Because Granny Weatherwax is Esme and Granny and Granny Weatherwax. Right, and they've Weatherwax all just got different names. So there's nothing yeah. to this argument? I don't think so. Alright. I threw it in there because I thought it was interesting because the idea of reinventing yourself and the power of names and sort of bringing those two ideas together, but I just don't think it's there. Yeah, because just people have different names. Yeah, right? Nanny Og is Githa and a disgusting old baggage. <laughs> <laughs> um, in fact, the, the only character who has a singular name is McGrath. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who doesn't know who she is. So by using this even... person's argument, it all falls yeah. apart by recognizing that. Yeah, okay. Well, I thought that was interesting that McGrath is just McGrath. She do and she doesn't perform this, like, granny weatherwax. Granny's not a granny. It's a simulacra. She yeah. takes on that thing. Whereas McGrath is. I am McGrath. Whatever I am, it is McGrath. And she's the one who is also really consciously developing herself, like, working on herself, whereas the others are just like, I am who I want to be. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Points for McGrath there. 
for actually being self-assured and not needing to put on the facade. She'd probably be a Ravenclaw. 10 points to Ravenclaw. Nah, McGrath would be a Hufflepuff. You're right. I was just thinking that. I'm like, maybe she's just, mm, yeah, Hufflepuff. Granny would be a Slytherin. <laughs> Absolutely. Og would be Gryffindor, wouldn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that checks out. Nevertheless, as Farrell Menison notes, when Lily Weatherwax changes people's shape, she does so in the erroneous assumption that this will enable her to change who they are. She confuses outward appearance with reality, and when asked to find herself, she can only look in mirrors. And Musa compares this to Gilbert and Gubar's claim that to be caught and trapped in a mirror is to be driven inward, obsessively studying self-images as if seeking a viable self. Yes, yeah, so something I cut out of the first part just for um, the sake of length is we did a bit of an analysis of Trip McCrossan's chapter Being One's Me, Witchy Personality and Identity on the Discworld from the Discworld and Philosophy book, where he argues that because Granny Weatherwax is saying that, well, you're your descendants of everyone and you're your me and that's all you are, that she's sort of arguing for genetic determinism. But I think that is not true, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because in the mirror scene at the end, she is empowered by the use of the identity cogito that we talked about, right? She of says, course. who are you? You are this one. And at that point, she is not in a body. Yep. So the real Granny Weatherwax being just her mind or herself proves that she is not a genetic determinist or even a materialist. She is always herself, no matter where or what she is. Yeah. So that's uh, Lily. And of course, Lily and Granny Weatherwax are mirror images of each other, which makes this a good time to finally address Granny's uncomfortable conservatism! So yeah, this is something we've been promising to talk about because it's something that stood out to both of us as sort of a negative about the book. And I know you're all in on the Granny bashing, but I do want to pull back (laughs) a little bit. I wouldn't call it Granny bashing. (laughs) I'm not a Granny basher. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. I do want to pull back a bit and say that I do recognize that Granny, like this is a satire, that Granny's conservatism is in there to be critical of it, but she's also the hero, so. the story. That is still frustrating though, isn't it? Anyway, that's fine. I don't want to Granny bash. But I I just want to put in for the record that my major beef, I think, with it, other than it being like uncomfortable throughout and perhaps you know, Pratchett was writing for, you know, his time, um, is that it doesn't, it, we've talked about this before, before the narrative consistency is out because that's not how she's represented in Weird Sisters and, yeah, Weird Sisters. Or Equal Rights. Equal Rights, thank you. Anyway. Where she changes her mind. She starts off conservative and then she changes her mind, whereas here she kind of doubles down. Yeah. And this is something that um, not only we've noticed, but something Karen Sayer notes in her chapter on the witches in the Guilty of Literature collection, observing that stories are always pulling us towards the conventional, and there is a conservative thread at work in some of Nanny's and Granny's attitudes, noting that while they teach respect for the land and the rights of other creatures, they also reinforce conservative hierarchies such as human above animal, culture above nature, and masculine above feminine. In the same collection, Farrell Mendelssohn refers to Granny Weatherwax as a benevolent dictator, drawing parallels between her and the more overtly Machiavellian Lord Vetinari, which I don't think is quite... That seems off. They both have to be in charge, don't they? But they one of them is actually a dictator. <laughs> True. Pratchett and Briggs also acknowledge this in the Discworld Companion, pointing out that Granny Weatherwax is uncomfortable with her uncrone-like clear skin and excellent teeth, stating that she's a traditionalist who believes that progress is an excuse for making bad things happen faster, which is something she says in Witches Abroad. Mm. So what stood out to you in particular 
I mean, I had a whole list in our first episode. Everywhere she goes, she won't accept how things are. She enforces her own understanding of culture and the world onto it and gets frustrated when those people won't gel with it. Essentially, she's like, you must assimilate to me everywhere she goes. And it reminds me very much of, uh, in my travels, you know, you'd meet people in in London, for example, in hostels or whatever, who'd sort of be saying, oh, London didn't used to be like this. And you'd be like, what do you mean like this? You mean the brown people? Is that your issue? Um, it, that That's the vibe I got from Granny Weatherwax when she was travelling around. Yeah, because you're right. She does, she goes in and humour ensues from her not being able to cope with the culture. And that's funny. Which is at her expense, but then she always has the upper hand. She's always right. Because at the start of the book, when the, when they're just discussing the trip, Granny Weatherwax says, oh, I can't be having with foreign parts, which is also <laughs> a joke about her. Yeah. Um, prudishness. But she says, I can't be having with foreign parts. And Nanny says, well, you've been to Angmorpork. That's foreign, which at least we, we have a reference to. She has been to Angmorpork. Equal rights is in the continuity. But Granny Weatherwax says, no, it's not. It's just a long way off. That's not the same as foreign. Yeah. Foreign's where they gabble at you in heathen lingo and eat foreign muck and worship. You know, objects. Foreign can be quite close too if you're not careful. Now, clearly this is xenophobic, but I think at this point, this is meant to be, she's going to flip that, right? Yeah. This is like in, in Equal Rights where she says, no, women can't be wizards. And then she realizes, oh, wait, they can and makes it happen. This is setting up something to be subverted, but I don't think it ever is. Not fully. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. She becomes friends with Miss Goggle and- but she becomes friends, like she has a black friend. It's yeah, not like yeah, she yeah, likes yeah. their I, culture, what right? what I meant. I was like, mm, but still. <laughs> and she ends up fighting her and defeating her and telling her how to run her country. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. something, there's, there's an effort made. Um. <laughs> yeah, so the bit that really sort of cemented it for me, or my, my dislike, my discomfort with this conservative street in which is abroad, is the end monologue. Because this is where it stops being Granny's conservative attitudes that are satirized and subverted to. This is Granny's hero monologue telling people what should be done. This is the way to run your lives. Like, she isn't, she goes into this other country and tells them how to run things. So it becomes white savior complex again, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm going to read the whole thing out. The big resolution of the book. And this is when, yeah... Emberella's come forth and they're deciding what to do. And she says, this ain't right, you know. She's the one who ought to rule. Fair enough. And he used magic to help her this far, right? Talking to Miss Goggle, who wants to put Emberella on the throne and restore the monarchy. And Granny says, and that's all right, but it stops here. It's up to her what happens next. You can't make things right by magic. You can only stop making them wrong. Miss mm. Goggle pulled herself up to a full, impressive height. Who's you to say what I can and can't do here? We're her godmothers, said Granny. That's right, said Nanny Og. We've got a one too, said McGrath. But you hate godmothers, Mistress Weatherwax, said Mrs. Goggle. We're the other kind, said Granny. We're the kind that gives people what they know they really need, what not what we think they ought to want. So they're American. Then you've done your godmothering, said Miss Goggle, who thought faster than most, and you did it very well. You didn't listen, said Granny. There's all sorts of things to godmothering. She might be quite good at ruling, she might be bad at it, but she's got to find out for herself, with no interference from anyone. So it's okay for Granny Weatherwax to do it, but it's not okay for Miss Goggle to do it. I mean, Miss Goggle is trying to tell her to be on the throne, and Granny is leaving it up to her. I get that, I understand that difference. But that's 
all that Granny Weatherwax has done is, is meddle. Yeah, and she's going, listen to me, I know best, even and as Miss Goggle says, right? Who's you to say what I can and can't do here? That's Pratchett acknowledging that, mm. yes, she's this cultural imperious, but then he has Granny Weatherwax and the other two, which is steamroll over yeah. and say, no, this is the, the way. And this is also a problem because Miss Goggle is maybe the only significant black character in all of Discworld. Yeah. I've been reading through some of the other ones, and I'm, I mean- I'm up, I'm going through the wizard series and I'm up to interesting times at the moment, which whew, that's going to be an interesting one when we get to it. Okay. Well, what was the name of the traveler who Rincewind meets in Color Two Flower? Pratchett's representation of representation of culture isn't always great, is what we've discovered. No, and the only time black people show up is when they're f- foreigners, like when he goes to the Egypt Kingdom in pyramids and things. I guess Tepic is a is a dark-skinned person, but they're always exoticized, right? There's no one black hanging out in Ankh-Morpork. No one explicitly so, anyway. Mm-hmm. And then the trolls and things are racially coded. And then the TV show of... Um, the Watch. The Watch is very culturally and gender-diverse, which is it. So they're sort of pushing back against that. But then also just miss the point. But then misses the, the point entirely. Yes, yes, but... That's all to say that genuine needs godmothers to come in and tell it what it wants, right? It can't decide for itself, or if it does... It can't be trusted. Yeah. As Pratchett writes in Witches Abroad, the basic unwritten rule of witchcraft seems to be, don't do what you will, do what I say. (laughs) So he's aware of this, but he does lean into it at the end. And it's frustrating because he's done all of this discussion of witchcraft where he's looked at it as an empowering, you know, idea and these witches as the main characters and the protagonists and then it just all becomes quite degrading when we get to this point, yeah. But if that is, if that is the unwritten rule of witchcraft, then the centre of witchcraft kind of degrades the whole thing that he set up. Yeah, so what first stood out to me, though, was how Granny wants the troll to go back and live under the bridge. <laughs> yep. It says, Granny Weatherwax had nothing against trolls, but she felt instinctively that if more trolls stopped wearing suits and walking upright and went back to living under bridges and jumping out and eating people as nature intended, then the world would be a happier place. Right? This is genetic determinism coupled with xenophobia, right? Go back to where you came from. And the reference to the troll under the bridge is, of course, a reference to the fairy tale of the three billy goats gruff. Mm-hmm. Which was first collected by the Norwegian folklorists Peter Christian Abingen and Jorgen Moe in the early 1840s. And this is a reference that uh, Leo Brebart, the L-Space annotator, says had him completely stumped for a while. Which I was surprised by. Like, this is a pretty common fairy tale, right? Yeah, I know three billion goats graph. But this is also something Pratchett explores further, and I think much better, in his short story Troll Bridge, which was published after Witches Abroad in 1992 as part of an anthology honouring J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, did you read this one? I did. Uh, what did you think, just generally? Was it Pratchett or was Gaiman? Ah, Pratchett. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, it was funny. Because it was Conan. It, it, it's just an extension of the Conan story as well. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. So in that story, the nonagenarian barbarian, Cohen, uh, goes to slay a troll who lives under a bridge, only to end up reminiscing with the troll about the way things used to be <laughs> and giving him all his treasure instead. So like Granny Weatherwax, Cohen believes that what the land needs is people with good memories and adherence to tradition. The troll, for his part, wants to be killed by a famous hero, so he'll be famed in song and story, but his wife and son want to leave the bridge behind and move to Ankh-Morpork, where they can start their own business and become more independent, right? Like all the brothers and uh, of the wife, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And Cohen's horse also questions him the entire time, asking, what's the good of killing a troll? What have you got when you've killed a troll? To which Cohen replies, a dead troll, that's the point. <laughs> 
like sort of poking fun at the idea of like why is Cohen doing this? Like it's just that tradition. And it's interesting that the the whole and this is the point. The story starts with the idea it's so cold. Everyone else is at home telling stories about heroes, and there's the hero who's out doing the hero thing, but it's pointless. And then it comes back to that at the end. Yeah, and both Cohen and the troll discover that they're only fighting because that's what their fathers did before them. With the troll later revealing that, like Nut in Unseen Academicals, he only fought because a big troll with a whip told him to. Hmm. So he didn't even want to do it originally. Which is interesting because in The Two Towers, Treebeard says that trolls, like orcs, are only counterfeits made by the enemy in mockery of Ents, as orcs were of elves. So, yeah, there's something hinting towards the exploration of orcs and Unseen Academicals in this much earlier, yeah, almost 20 years before novel, which is something I've noticed now reading all the, um, going back through the Wizard series, and, and I'm about halfway through a full reread of the Discord series. Pratchett recycles a lot of jokes and a lot of ideas. Mm, okay. That, that um, black like the inside of a cat thing that I said was my favourite part of Witches Abroad. Yep. That's a joke he uses in The Light Fantastic. Oh, no. <laughs> and, um, and actually, the premise for Witches Abroad is also in The Light Fantastic. They come across a gingerbread cottage and they all talk about fairy tales. Yeah, half the ideas for all these other books are all just scenes in The Light Fantastic. Like, they sit around, someone mentions the Tooth Fairy and then they go, oh, imagine a whole castle made of teeth filled by Tooth Fairies and then that's Hogfather. So... Interesting. Also interesting about Troll Bridge, this is the Gaiman thing you were thinking about, because Gaiman, who we're maybe going to do a bonus episode on next month, also published a story called Troll Bridge in 1993, wherein a London schoolboy promises a troll to come back to his bridge and let him eat his life when he's older. Right. Um, so Gaiman's story was written for the revisionist fairy tale collection Snow White Blood Red and was nominated for a World Fantasy Award in 1994, but lost to Fred uh, Chappell's The Lodger. You ever heard of that? No. No. Which I also thought was interesting because although he was given a Life Achievement Award for The Color of Magic and Mort in 2010, none of Pratchett's short stories have ever been nominated for um, the World Fantasy Award. Mm. And of all his novels, only Good Omens, his collaboration with Gaiman, has ever been nominated as well. Which is absurd. Agreed. Now, I think he's definitely been nominated and maybe won some of the British Fantasy Awards. So there's a divide here between Gaiman's American, Pratchett's British. But like, come on, not even nominated. Mm. The most popular fantasy series throughout the 80s and the 90s. Nah, don't worry about it. And also, at, well, as you say, Gaiman got nominated for everything. And Gaiman um, uh, says that Pratchett was a huge influence on him. So, what? Yeah, I've got it written here. Pyramids is the only novel by Pratchett to date to have won the British Science Fiction Award. And that is, I, that's one I read that is not a good Discworld book. <laughs> um, yeah, meanwhile, almost anything Gaiman writes gets nominated. Although he only ever won the um, the, the World Fantasy Award for the Sandman comic story, Amid Simon. A Night's Dream, which is what we're going to talk about next month. Though he's won Hugo's for The Graveyard Book and American Gods, which I think are quite bad. Mm, yeah. Gaiman says he wanted to call his Trollbridge story Trip Trap, but he couldn't since Gene Wolfe had already used that title. So he just stole Pratchett's instead, I guess. Like, I suppose I you know. could call Pratchett up and be like, hey man, you okay if... <laughs> Still makes things very confusing though, right? Mm, yeah. So it's all to say, Neil Gaiman's a hacker who rips off Terry Pratchett all the time. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> And you'll hear it again next month. Patreon special. <laughs> but yes, back to Witches Abroad. We're not meant to sympathize with Granny about this, right? Yeah. Her reflection that the lack of tradition being the problem is setting up parallels with Lilith, which Granny will later flip around and oppose. But as Smith points out, Lilith's declaration that if you've got no respect, you've got nothing echoes Granny's earlier complaint that if you ain't got respect, you ain't got a thing. In the tavern, when nobody knows about witches. And this thing about respect is something she repeats in the later books as well. So, this is Pratchett, I think, knowingly showing how Granny and Lily 
are two sides of the same coin and that it's not, this might be the idea that there is no bad magic, which we kind of poo-pooed. And since going back and reading Sorcery and the Light Fantastic is, there is bad magic in Discworld. Right. But the idea that these ideas themselves aren't bad, but it's the way they're acting on it, Mm -hmm. I guess. There's also Granny saying of the Duke in Weird Sisters, he didn't have no respect. And that once people lose their respect, it means trouble. So she sees respect as adherence to the the natural order of things, which she abides by. And when people don't abide by her worldview, then she thinks they've lost respect. She wants to keep him under the pricking of her thumb. Indeed. Yes. Conversely, Daphne Antonia Lawless argues that it is Magrat's determination to impose standards of proper behaviour on the unruly, organic nature of Lenka society that is dangerously close to that of Lily Weatherwax and contains the same connotations of disrespect for human freedom. And indeed, Granny considers both nothing but daft godmothers. Which I think is a bit harsh <laughs> on young McGrath there. I don't think she's very Lily-esque. I mean, that is the thing. It's the Lord of the Rings thing that if she's tempted by the wand, she will become Lily because she just wants to fix everything with the wand. But if we're saying that magic itself can't be bad, the wand can't be bad, and maybe McGrath could use it in good ways. Agreed. So I don't have too much to say about Mrs. Gilgal. Um, do you? Yeah, I don't know. She she isn't a really well-developed character. I think that's part of the mm. problem. Yeah, she's a cool character, but not a very deep one. Yeah, that's it. But there's Nut R. Nutson, whose thesis on the use of formulas in Terry Pratchett's Discworld we discussed in part one. He had the cool theory about the Lord of the Rings stuff mm-hmm. and Gollum and everything. He points out that Mrs. Gilgal is also a double of Lilith just like Granny Weatherwax. And he says that Lily represents order and aristocracy, while Mrs. Gogol represents anarchy and the common people, surmising that the main purpose of Mrs. Gogol's role thematically is to represent the potential for abuse of power even in the forces that oppose the villain. And this is, again, second time it's been brought up on the podcast, I'm going to make a Bioshock Infinite reference. (laughs) Because in that game, there's the Black Rebellion against the the tyrants, and they go through a time rift and they come back and... um, now the black people are in charge and they were evil genociders as well and everything's horrible and if you let the black rebellion win they'll just be evil and centrism right mm. so and this is that game has drawn a lot of criticism for this since its release and i think the same is maybe applicable to pratchett even if he doesn't show mrs gogol being a tyrant he's implying it'd be same but different and yeah okay yeah i also take issue with her being the representative of anarchy and the common people given that mm-hmm. her goal is to restore the monarchy yeah i was just thinking that <laughs> yeah so I'm not sure how much credence I put in that read. Um, but Mrs. Goggle also gives us another connection to Disney's Princess and the Frog uh, in the figure of Baron Samedi or Baron Saturday, the voodoo lord of the dead who appears as the assumed zombie servant of Mrs. Goggle and turns out to be the king in hiding. Um, yeah, so the read is given the false lead by Nanny Og of Man Saturday, which is referencing Robinson Crusoe's native friend, Man Friday. Have you read Robinson Crusoe? I have, yeah. Do you want to explain uh, Man Friday? It's like, um, I'm, I'm actually going to use Castaway to explain Man Friday, because uh-huh. it's the, it's Wilson, isn't it? Well, Wilson, if he was a subjugated black man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, that's what I was going for. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't actually read it, and I really should, and I was going to before this, but then I just didn't. See, I was obsessed with Treasure Planet as a kid. Treasure oh, okay. Planet and Atlantis was my favorite Disney films. Probably because there's a there's an absent parent in Treasure Planet, and I was like, this will help me work through trauma. Well, there's an absent parent in every Disney movie. There That's is, kind of but it's, thing, there's right? a whole song. It's, it's a, yeah, you've got to see it, and you'll get what, what I mean. That led me down reading Robinson Crusoe at a very young age, actually, because I read Treasure Treasure Island, and then I read Robinson Crusoe itself. <laughs> 
It's one that keeps coming up for me, surprisingly, in relation to science fiction, because it's sort of an apocalyptic last man novel without there being an apocalypse. <laughs> but, like, all the post-apocalyptic one-man scavenging native narratives are based on this survival desert island sort of thing. Mm. But, yeah, so Robinson Crusoe is the white guy who gets trapped on the island, and then he makes one of the natives into, I've, I've said, quote, friends. But, like, he's a slave, right? He's a slave. So... Not great that Nanny Og's referring to the first black guy she sees as Man Friday. Oofed. But also, this is a reference to Robinson Crusoe, so did we get that through the quantum resonance as well? Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, which is going to come into play, Lords and Ladies, but at this point, I think it's sloppy. <laughs> Some further voodoo connections I thought were worth pointing out are that Mrs. Gogol's full name is uh, Urzulai Gogol, and in voodoo lore, Matris Urzulai is the idealized figure of womanhood and the spirit of love and beauty. Okay. But the Urzulai is also an order of the angel-like Iowa, or voodoo spirits, I'm not sure if I'm saying that properly, who are often associated with water and fluidity, as well as feminine or feminized bodies, such as those of some queer or trans men who they're said to sometimes possess. So we have this idea of gender bending associated with witchcraft and magic again, but is that mm-hmm. just because queerness and femininity are demonized, right? Like if you're feminine, you must be taken over by one of these female demons rather than just that's who you are. Yeah. So it's less an empowering association there, I think, but maybe could be reclaimed i'm not sure i didn't do too much look into voodoo stuff and i'm not even sure if like voodoo is the right word for it whether i should be calling it voodoo how much it all relates because i think my broad understanding is there is a haitian religion called voodoo or voodoo v-o-d-u but then broadly these offshoot religions or similar religions are referred to as voodoo and i'm not sure how much of a colonialist term that is I see. So I'm I'm not really that comfortable talking about voodoo, but it also, like Lilith, surprisingly didn't come up that much. Interesting. And I didn't, I was just, we've we've covered a lot here, so I didn't go in hard on the voodoo stuff. I I went, I followed the yellow brick road instead. (laughs) But going back to the idea that I don't know if this is the most insightful representation of voodoo, it's all a bit of a mishmash. This especially comes to the fore. Miss Gogol has her house that walks on chicken feet, which is a reference to the Slavic witch Baba Yaga, not Voodoo. So he's just sort of associating weird witch things. I don't think he's really making a point about any of it. But another thing that New Orleans is associated with, that Pratchett engages with more fully, is the idea of the carnival. So, Witches Broad ends with a festival, which is a parody of the famous New Orleans Mardi Gras festival. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, Mardi Gras, or Fat Tuesday, is actually a Christian tradition. All right, it's go on. The, well, it's the last day before Lent, which many observing Christians fast on. Yep. In preparation for Easter. So, Fat Tuesday is the last day where you eat everything before the fast over Easter. Gotcha. And Mardi Gras and Carnival also bring us back to our boy, Buckkin. He's your boy. Go on. Well, he's everyone's boy, apparently. He comes up everywhere. He came up in my Star Trek research as well. I'm like, go away. <laughs> <laughs> so in his 1965 reassessment of the 15th century French satirist Francois Rabelais and his world, Buckton explores the history of Carnival and cultural right, parody. As Buckton describes it, laughter was an essential aspect of ancient societies, with Aristotle even arguing that laughter was the single essential feature that set humans apart from and above other animals. Under early Christianity, however, he says, carnivals and just humour in general were widely outlawed or at least condemned, with the first century Christian preacher John Chrysostom even preaching against mimes and declaring that laughter was not from God, but from the devil. Right. 
So stick that in your podcast. <laughs> During this period, Bacton also says that rudiments of gaiety and laughter were primarily preserved and revived through Eastern influences and local pagan rites, especially by the rites of fertility, which were later adopted into Christian rituals. So that's how we get things like Easter. Easter. Yeah. yeah. With festival humour again becoming legalised at medieval church-sanctioned festivals and again revived during the Renaissance, primarily through the works of Rabelais and Shakespeare. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is this book, it is actually a really interesting read. I just read the first hundred pages or so, which where he's going through this history of carnival and humour and literary humour and things before he actually gets into like the close analysis of Rabelais' work, because I'm not really familiar with that. But it was one of those ones where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to read this section about the carnival stuff in the first chapter. And then I just read a hundred pages of it. I'm like, whoa, get a load of this. So it's an interesting read. But the point of Carnival is that it doesn't so much invert power structures. This is the idea of the fool becoming the king and whatnot in Weird Sisters, right? Carnival's the one day you were allowed to make fun of the king. Mm-hmm. But he says, yeah, it doesn't invert. It doesn't make fools kings and kings fools. It flattens it so that fools are mm. equal to kings during the carnival. There is no power hierarchy. That's the idea anyway. Buckton also says that while carnival lasts, there is no other life outside of it. During carnival time, life is subject to is subject only to its laws, that is, the laws of its own freedom. It has a universal spirit. It is a special condition of the entire world, of the world's revival and renewal in which all take part. He cautions, however, that the carnival is far distant from the negative and formal parody of modern times. Folk humour denies, he says, but it revives and renews at the same time. Bare negation, which he associates with postmodern literature specifically, he says is completely alien to folk culture, right? It has no reviving property. He's writing this in the 1960s when postmodernism is burgeoning and a detached postmodern irony is starting to take hold throughout literature and wider culture. But yeah, Buckton doesn't like this this irony. He says it's just, it's taking everything down. It doesn't revitalize. It doesn't propose anything in its spot. That's fair. But yes, Buckton cautions that carnival satirists are not objective, judgmental observers. They laugh at themselves as well. So would Buckton like Pratchett? I don't know. Well, he died in 1975 when Pratchett died. Right, we'll published never know. People. Yeah, and a few sorts stories, so we'll, we'll never know. Um, Probably not. Pratchett's too postmodern for yeah. him. But I do think he sticks closer to Buckton's idea of carnival parody than most. Like, I don't think Pratchett's particularly ironic. He's farcical. He's satirical. But I don't think he's doing this postmodern irony like... Not in the same way as the others. Yeah, he's not bleak. Yeah. Indeed, Andrew and Butler suggests that one of Butkin's assessments of Rabelais's work could equally be applied to Pratchett, saying that Pratchett's images have a certain undestroyable non-official nature. There is no dogma, no authoritarianism, no narrow-minded seriousness that can exist with these images. These images are opposed to all that is finished and polished, to all pomposity, to every ready-made solution in the sphere of thought and world outlook. So he's specifically saying Pratchett is rebellion, carnival-esque, I don't know. I'm not quite sold on there is no dogma or no authoritarianism or narrow-mindedness, especially after mm. we just looked at- The narrow-mindedness yeah, and the dogma um, and the authoritarianism. <laughs> I do I do think there's something to this, where Pratchett's postmodernism is the metafictional aspect rather than the ir- ironic aspect, I guess. But yeah, r- rather than Easter, the celebrations in Genua more readily suggest the traditional celebration of All Hallows' Eve or Halloween, which is another surprisingly Christian tradition, albeit with distinctive pagan and Celtic roots like Easter. So it's the Day of the Dead when witches are abroad in some cultures 
and the dead are said to walk the earth like Baron Saturday. So there's another carnival-induced power inversion going on there. Our boy Smith, he says, the swamp, like the carnival, represents chaos. It is miasmic. It resists attempts to structure it. And though you might build Walt Disney World on top of it, someday the swamp will come back and swallow whatever structures have been superimposed on it. All right, but that's just entropy. Yeah, right. (laughs) This is why people make fun of literary studies. Right. Like, there is something going on here with the fluidity in the swamps, but we said in the last um, podcast that the reason why Pratchett set this in New Orleans is because he drove there. Yeah. (laughs) And then maybe he is invoking the, the swamp and things, but I don't think he's no, really the, doing No, the swamp is just this. a It is land and water. And the zombie <laughs> is both dead and alive, okay? He's, he's <laughs> doing like, something with the zombie thing, not the swamp <laughs> thing so much. I think the swamp's just a setting. But speaking of terrible literary theory theories, I have one. Are you ready? Oh, no, okay. <laughs> so, something I noticed while researching which is Abroad was that critics kept referring to it as a pastiche. So do you know what pastiche is? A pastiche is when it is mimicking something, but it's not meant to be funny. It's just meant to be flat out mimicry. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a confusing term that's kind of used, has different meanings in different contexts and different people use it in different ways. Um, The OED conflates pastiche with just parody, says it's a different word Mm. for parody, and the incorporation of different styles, which yes, if they're, I think these critics are probably using that meaning of it, saying that Mm -hmm. this is a parody and it incorporates all these different fairy tales into one big narrative. I get that, right? But pastiche also has a very very particular meaning when it comes to postmodernism. Right. In his 1983 essay, Postmodernism and the Consumer Society, Frederick Jameson, who's the guru of I like that we're studies, using guru as the term. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he argues in this essay that along with the collapsing of high and low culture, that pastiche is one of the most significant features or practices of postmodernism. And he defines pastiche as distinct from parody, uh, which mm-hmm. we discussed definitions of parody in the Weird Sisters episode. Parody is targeting something and playing it up to subvert it. Yeah, so Jameson says parody capitalizes on the uniqueness of styles and seizes upon their innocent and eccentricities to produce an imitation that mocks the original, while maintaining the intimation of what he calls a linguistic norm, in contrast to which the target of the parody can be mocked. As we said, it plays it up and says, this is ridiculous, and, and compares it mm-hmm. to something else that it wants to assert in its place. Once this idea of a linguistic or cultural norm, like the objective not norm at the centre of the modernist movement, once this collapses or becomes to stabilise, parody becomes impossible because there is no norm to compare things to. So therefore, instead it is replaced by pastiche, which he defines as the intimation of a peculiar or unique style or the wearing of a stylistic mask. Unlike parody, he says, pastiche is a neutral practice of such mimicry without parody's ulterior motive, without the satirical impulse, without the laughter, it is blank parody, parody that has lost its sense of humour. I do think there is a criticism in some pastiches, but it's sort of saying that things can't be otherwise, right? Stories that start with mirrors have to end with a mirror maze, because they can't not. So you're adhering to this style, and you may be acknowledging that this style is ridiculous but you're not parodying it and saying this is silly we should do something else you're going once a mirror is mentioned i've got to end up here does that make sense no not at all (laughs) i think this is just one of those postmodernist things that you know you can accept in theory but i'm not sure i get it in practice pastiche it's it's often used as a a criticism like if you say oh this is just a pastiche of right it's flat it's not doing anything with yeah, it yeah like um okay like i'm trying to think of a movie or something the only example i can think of is a, an obscure death metal album okay <laughs> who's surprised well <laughs> it, just because i use the word pastiche we were talking about there's an album by the band called contrarian and they put out a new album and it was pretty good like not a bad album but i was talking about it uh with 
Eden, who edits Heavy Blog that I write for, um, and he does some literary science fiction stuff as well. And we were saying this album's good, but it's just a pastiche of early '90s death metal. Like it's cool, right? So just using it, but not doing yeah, anything. Yeah, it's doing new, a really different. good okay. representation right. of the sound, but it just doesn't have its own identity. I get it. I get it. Wow, you used heavy metal to explain a post. Yeah, I mean, you can apply that to anything. I'm trying to think like action movies, right? Big dumb action movies. I was going to say John Wick, but John Wick does subvert and do new things. But you want to see Arnold Schwarzenegger say, I'll be back, because that's what Arnold Schwarzenegger does. And if he doesn't do that, then it hasn't adhered to your expectations. But it can also be, in a post-modern sense, a criticism. That Mm -hmm. if you have a guy walking ironically through a mirror maze, it's sort of commenting on, well, of course I'm in a mirror maze. Right. But unlike parody that combats these expectations or or these norms, it just highlights them. Mm -hmm. It goes, here is the mirror maze, but it doesn't say, it doesn't, yeah, undercut it at all. Jamison says postmodern pastiche is an imitation of dead forms, giving the original Star Wars as the the example, Mm. which is a much better example than an obscure death metal album. (laughs) He says that Star Wars itself is a pastiche of Saturday morning serials, right? It's taking all these old serialized adventures and putting them together to create something new. But there would be no point in parodying Star Wars, because he obviously hasn't seen Spaceballs, because it's already an imitation of something else. You see how this is sort of tied in with simulacras and things. And he says, what Star Wars does instead, rather than commenting on these old properties is it satisfies a deep perhaps repressed longing to experience these dead forms again Mm. which i think sort of ties into this idea of like what is the point of parodying fairy tales like where are the new ones disney movies are pastiches of fairy tales yeah but they're written in a way for like young kids in today's world to understand them you know right it's satisfying the longing to experience the dead fairy tale form rather than creating new stories there are new stories added in, I th- even if it's just new perspectives, but I see your point. But the idea that the princess has to marry the prince, that's a pastiche. Mm-hmm. Also, the Disney Renaissance is a throwback to Golden Age Disney. Yeah. Golden Age <laughs> Disney was films adults had in their youth of Snow White and Sleeping Beauty that they grew up on. So they made films about fairy tales for their children mm-hmm. to then grow up on. So it's yep. this nostalgia thing, right? So pastiche, as we saw from the OED definition, is also the mixing of styles. So that's where the creativity can come from, is you're not innovating on these two styles, but then you're taking two things that haven't been put together and putting them together, right? What happens when we mix witch fantasy with fairy tales or something, right? But gotcha. yeah, I don't, as we sort of said before, I don't think Discworld has this detached, ironic, objectivist view it's going for. No, it's parody. It's parody, right? Yeah. <laughs> In the Guilty of Literature collection, John Clute, who's one of the original science fiction uh, encyclopedia editors claims that while Pratchett writes parody it's almost always benign open-ended and without a point of animus so hard disagree on that one there go on go off ah just clearly Pratchett has very clear targets that he is attacking as we've discovered so the dominance of pastiche in postmodern literature also connects to what John Barth calls the literature of exhaustion um, when attempting to divine postmodern aesthetics in his 1967 essay of the same name. This is the same guy who wrote Lost in the Funhouse with the mirrors and Ulysses and everything. Yeah, John Barth is also uh, a different author guy. guy and everything. There's Roland Barth and John Barth. Oh, Roland Barth so and Roland John Barth. Roland Barth is death okay. the author guy. John Barth is literature of exhaustion. Do you know literature of ex- exhaustion? Is that the one you sent me? I did. I 
started reading it and I was like, oh no, this is a book. <laughs> I really like the literature of Exhaustion. I think it's cool. It was funny and I was like, I don't have time for this funniness though. <laughs> uh, yeah, his books are worth reading and I need to read more of them. But in defining postmodern literature um, as the literature of exhaustion, Barth specifies that he didn't mean physical, moral, or intellectual decadence, only the used upness of certain forms or the felt exhaustion of certain possibilities. So this is like what we're saying, the exhaustion of the mirror thing. Yeah. That, that is a used up idea. He then writes an essay in 1980 called The Literature of Replenishment, which he intends as a companion and corrective to the literature of exhaustion where he clarifies that what the literature of exhaustion was really about was the effective exhaustion not of language or of literature, but of the aesthetics of high modernism. So that's him specifically saying, the mirror maze as a reflection on self has been done, we need to do something else with it. He then goes and writes Lost in the Funhouse that has a twist on the mirror maze and he other sorts of things. He says that the simple burden of the essay was that the forms and modes of art live in human history and are therefore subject to used upness. That artistic conventions are liable to be retired, subverted, transcended, transformed, or even deployed against themselves to generate a new and lively work. Not that it has all been done already, and that there is nothing left for contemporary writers but to parody and travesty our great predecessors in our exhausted medium. So he's kind of siding with Buckton a bit here, where he's saying you can't just be blank nihilism, you have to create through your parody. Ah, but you can. No, yeah. (laughs) I am going somewhere with this, I promise. Mm -hmm. In the literature of exhaustion, Bath also expresses admiration for artists and writers who are genuine virtuosi. Virtuosi? Vanessa Virtuosi? Um... Virtuosi? Vanessa Virtuosi. There we go, I got it. Writers who are genuine virtuosi. I can't remember which one's the right one now. Virtuosi. (laughs) Genuine virtuosi. Doing things that anyone can dream up and discuss but almost no one can do. Expressing a specific admiration for Borges, who's the map uh, map Mm. becoming the territory guy. Which it turns out actually comes from Lewis Carroll. Ah, everything does. Um, it's in, uh, what's it called? Is it Sylvia and Bruno? The other yeah. Lewis Carroll story? So not Alice in Wonderland, but in one of his other books, they, it, as part of the ridiculous, absurdist sort of thing, there are people literally tracing out a map on the ground in front of them. And then Borges comes along later and writes that in a little short story. And because he's the cool Argentinian modernist writer, everyone's like, ooh, Borges. Mm, um, mm. I do like Borges more than Lewis Carroll, but I just find that interesting because he, Borges is the guy and his main themes were mirrors and Shakespeare, just like, just like. <laughs> Pratchett we're finding out but that's just postmodernism really mirrors and Shakespeare and the Odyssey <laughs> postmodernism mirrors and Shakespeare a conference <laughs> but yes Pratchett's taking these and running them through a fantasy filter right he's literalizing these metaphors so we get a literal mirror maze that has sucked out Lily's soul rather than just being implicit which is cool let's get to my crazy theory now all right Pratchett is specifically using parody to combat pastiche what he is parodying is not fairy tales. What he is parodying is pastiche itself. It is not the fairy tales he's making fun of. It is the idea of the story running down the mountain. Okay. I mean, that that works because he's done that in previous books as yeah. well. He's done, he did it in Weird Sisters? Yes. Okay. Crazy theory confirmed. That is my final assessment of which is Abroad. Are you happy with that, Alice? Confirmed. <laughs> Uh, so we kind of rushed through this section, uh, probably because we're about three hours into our third round of podcasting about Witches Abroad, um, but I wasn't quite as clear about the connections here as I would have liked to be. So to clarify, my reading is that Lily's kingdom is stagnant because all she can do is pastiche. She can only create ironic, inferior reflections of stories that have no substance or point of their own, and she can only show people what they've been doing wrong, not correct anything, or suggesting what they could be doing right. She doesn't want Amberella to go to the carnival because that's 
that's where the power of parody lies, and when she does, Lilith is undone and she becomes trapped in a meaningless world of ironic self-reflection that she can't see any way out of because she, like postmodern pastiche, has no real identity or positive identity. I have also since found a couple of articles, being Gideon Harbicon's chapter on parody pastiche and satire in Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels from the 2018 Narrative Worlds collection, and a section from Dorothy Anderson's thesis Bewitching Writing, which similarly assert the revitalizing nature of Pratchett's parody in opposition to pastiche. Uh, neither do so in direct connection to Witches Abroad, however, so I might even write an article about that myself, I think. Uh, clarification concluded. I have nothing else to say. Well, neither do I. All we've got left is the Miskworld section. I'm wondering if the Miskworld section deserves its own theme song. Uh, okay, what Miss is Quild! it? Miskworld! Miskworld! Stuff that! Doesn't fit! Yeah! Oh yeah, all right. <laughs> do you want Do you want me to do the woo woo woo? Oh yeah, give you best woo woo woo. Woo woo. That didn't even come through my speakers. I think it got compressed by the zoom. So I'll see what it sounds like on your um. Yeah, so Miss World. I just wanted to bring up. Hans Christian Andersen, because he's the only big fairy tale guy that none of his fairy tales actually get parodied in this book. His fairy tales that we know, which are all ones that have been preserved through Disney, but are The Little Mermaid, Thumbelina, and The Emperor's New Clothes. So Pratchett is anti-Hans? Don't know, just when Pratchett was picking, he went with Perot and the Grimms. I just they thought are. that was an interesting omission. It's also the omission of Beauty and the Beast, even though we did, that one came up for other reasons. Um, and that is a fairy tale written by the French novelist Gabrielle Suzanne Bardot de Villeneuve, which was published in 1740. Yeah, so I just wanted to point out that those are the only two sort of big fairy tales that are getting overlooked here. Uh, we also have a bit of a phallic suggestion to McGrath and especially Granny Weatherwax's broomsticks on the cover, don't you agree? Absolutely, those are penises. <laughs> yeah. Good for them. I think the esque one was very suggestive in that it had the veins and the stars shooting out of it. Well, I mean, that it's just the shape. Look at it. <laughs> and where it's, where it's um, uh, coming from. Yeah, and that's sort of just like witches on broomsticks, like it's already phallic. So it's not like he's drawing a penis, yeah. he's drawing a thing that is a penis. But it looks a lot like a penis. Like Granny's, the way she's gripping it there, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. That's a penis. <laughs> The other thing that I wanted to mention, just because it came up a few times um, in the literature of replenishment essay, Bath cites Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 1967 novel, 100 Years of Solitude, as the closest example of the perfect postman novel, or just a literary masterpiece mm. in general. And that book involves okay. a man building a city out of mirrors. Of course it does. Um, the literary critic... Warren Moat, who we talked about, also brings it up when discussing perfect books in his 2005 lecture, Reflections on Mirrors, which is all about mirror scenes mm. in literature. Do you know 100 Years of Solitude? No, I know Love in the Time of Cholera, and that turned me <laughs> off all Marquez for forever. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I started it and I got about a third of the way through and was just like, ah, oh, mainstream literary fiction. It seemed <laughs> fine. It just wasn't. Needed more wizards. Ah, yes. Or, or, or spaceships. Isn't that normally your thing? Well, wizards in space, right? Star Wars. Give me that hit. But I was, I'm like, come on, let's get to the Mirror City. And it didn't come quick enough. So but one day I'll get it out. Ah, that's that. normally the problem. All right, and the, and the last thing in the Miss World section is the um, vegetarian stuff, which I am just dumping in the end here, but there is a thread. At some point, all this is going to come together because is Witches Abroad the most Carnist Discworld book? Carnist being meat-eating. You didn't notice that going through it? They went around, they ate meat at lots of places. I noticed that. You have Miss Goggle, who can do things with a chicken that would make it almost glad it had been killed. But you also have Nanny Og, who won't eat anything without an apple in its mouth. 
And even uh, the vegetarian Magrat, who, when she's talking about the pigs being the neighbors, the Three Little Pigs parody, when she's going, well, they were pigs. You know what pork is before it's pork. So there's a lot of meat stuff. So she identifies Yeah, them. going yeah, on in this meat. book, which the big vegetarian thing is going to come to a head in Lords and Ladies. So we'll revisit it there. But just setting it up, that a lot of talk about meat in this book. All that leaves us is our favourite jokes. I feel like we've done favourite jokes throughout. Do you have a favourite joke? Uh, the ones we've mentioned already were words have sex in foreign parts and yen That's Buddhism. That's right. Which I also realise that implies that there is Buddha in the Discworld, but I'll let it go for a good pun. And then the other thing I liked, <laughs> which I did bring up incidentally, was I like that Nanny Og self-identifies as a disgusting old baggage. <laughs> <laughs> I just found that amusing. <laughs> yeah, I think we're finally done, Alice. Thank you for indulging me in a three-part episode, mostly about things not in I'll the book. I'll <laughs> go read Lords and Ladies. Yeah, do it. I'm excited about Lords and Ladies. All right, I'll start it. I'll finish Camilla and I'll start it tonight. And we're clear. That's all for this episode of Unseen Academicals. There'll be another one along in a month, but if you can't wait until then, you can sign up to our Patreon page and get all the episodes a full month in advance, along with any bonus episodes or specials that we end up doing. If you're after more of us, Alice hosts her own podcast of The Devil's Party, which traces the development of the satanic hero throughout romantic and gothic literature. Links to a bibliography for today's show, along with a fully referenced and footnoted transcript should be available in the episode description. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for some amusing outtakes. Do you want to, we, we both have particular lines from The Mad Woman in the Attic, because there's a whole bunch of stuff about Milton and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is, you know, stuff Alice and I are very invested in and do a lot of research about, um, that particularly irk us. So, Alice, do you want to read yours? All right. I love when students use this one as well. I'm just like- <laughs> Oh, it's come up, has it? Angry in the comments. All right. So, for if Eve is sins as well as Satan's double, then Satan is to Eve what he is to sin, both a lover and a daddy. <laughs> The word daddy's come up more than none in a lot of scholarship. (laughs) Yeah, it's strange. My major gripe comes when they're talking about how Frankenstein subverts the female role in, in the creation of life by making a man without having to go through pregnancy and everything. And they describe his pregnancy and childbirth- They say, are obviously manifested by the existence of the paradoxically huge being who emerges from his workshop of filthy creation. Filthy because obscenely sexual. And they actually cite this filthy creation line about 10 different times throughout the chapter. They really fixate on it about, like, this filthy creation is what makes... Like, creation is filthy because it's feminine and because it, childbirth is, is filthy as well. But it's filthy because it's, um, I was going to say hubristic. Mm. Right, it's defying the natural yeah. order. It's filthy. It's it's and sinful. It's sinful. That's the word. Yeah, it's yeah. filthy because it's sinful. And also, <laughs> because the quote from Frankenstein that this comes from, the full quote is, The dissecting room in the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, <laughs> saying that he collected bones from charnel houses and disturbed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame in my filthy workshop of creation. So it's filthy because it's covered with animal and dead body parts and things. And for me, coming from the 
animal ethics, vegetarianism side of things, it's filthy because he's mixing human and non-human parts to create a new creature. That's what's sinful about it. Not so much that it doesn't involve a woman or that it's a man doing a woman's job. I think that reading is there, and certainly Mary Shelley, who was pregnant her whole life and Mm. had all these male influences sort of using her to procreate. There's definitely something going on there, but I find a lot of feminist readings of Frankenstein really, like, limit it to that. They trigger down the go, there's nothing else going on here. It's all about childbirth and it's like childbirth is in there but it's about fifth or sixth down on the list also there's much better evidence to sort of discuss that and and i think this is representative of our whole beef with gilbert and gubar is that they'll take something and just completely move it away from the context in a way that could like what their argument is could be helpful and could be useful but they don't seem to know enough about the text or they're so invested in applying that reading that it completely corrupts like what the text actually means and it takes forever to get us back to it. Oh, it's frustrating. Um, yeah, she gets no respect. We said that Maggie, Maggie Smith was a perfect fit for Granny Weatherwax, but uh, mm. maybe she would be better played by Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> that was a joke. I was going to see if it worked. Didn't. <laughs> Getting cut. <laughs> 